through a series on the book of Matthew. So today we are in Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 24 and through the rest of the chapter. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, I'm sure many of us are tired from Thanksgiving and maybe distracted this morning. Lord, we we just ask for your help. We ask for your Spirit's awakening. We pray that we would encounter you through your Word and through these parables that we're going to look at this morning. And we pray that you would arrest our hearts and our minds. And we pray, I pray for those who don't yet know you, that this would be the day that it all makes sense and they see you, Jesus for who you truly are. And Lord, we, we, I pray for those who know you already that we would be excited about that reality and the idea of serving you all the rest of the days that you give us here on earth. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I don't hear anything. You guys hear anything? <laughs> uh, Matthew chapter 13 Uh, We're going to look at verses 24 through 58, and we are in the section of Matthew where Jesus is teaching with a whole bunch of parables. We'll let that go by too. (laughs) So I'm easily distracted to start with, so I'm I'm focused now. So this morning, the the passage is going to be really relevant to really every single person in this room, no matter what your background is, no matter if you grew up in a church or if you didn't, no matter if you have faith or you don't have faith, there will be something for every one of us this morning. Let me ask you some questions to just get the gears turning. How do you know if someone truly is a Christian? How do you know that? Have you ever been fooled? Thought someone was a Christian, but then it turns out they seem not to be a Christian. Are there people in your life that once were really passionate about Jesus, and now deny that Jesus is even God. Is that okay? Should we be concerned? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the person that once really thought you believed, and now you really are not sure. Maybe on a broader scale, you look at Christianity as a whole across our country or across the globe. Do you ever wonder if Christianity as a thing is ever going to just fade out and not make it? Will Christianity be defeated? Will the church fade? Have you ever wondered if it's truly worth it to give up everything to follow Jesus as he calls us to do? All of these questions are going to be addressed and answered in some way this morning as we look at parables that Jesus is going to teach. And if you weren't here last week, a parable is simply a story that is intended to make a very specific spiritual truth. Uh, You can kind of think of it as like an illustration. So the illustration isn't the thing, but the, the illustration, the purpose of it is to have the truth stick to our minds and to our hearts. John Bunyan, uh, the famous pastor and author of the book Pilgrim's Progress, he once uh, equated illustrations to burrs. Like if you go hunting, you're out in the field, and you, you come in and your pants are just covered with those little things that are all stuck to your pants. That's what illustrations are supposed to do. They're like burrs of truth that stick to you. And Jesus is the master 
of doing this. So we're going to look at six parables this morning, and some of them are really short, and they're just going to stick like those burrs with spiritual truth. The big idea that emerges from this passage is that because judgment is coming, because Jesus will one day return, we must passionately live for Jesus now. Because judgment is coming, we, sh- we must passionately live for Jesus now and urgently plead with others to trust in him or to do so also. First point, until the harvest. The title of the sermon today is Until the Harvest, and I take this out of his first parable. Until the harvest, we must plant gospel seeds. So Jesus is going to tell a parable about a harvest, about planting and harvesting a crop, And then he's going to explain what the parable means. So look at verse 24 as I read the parable. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven that could also be the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God that Jesus brought in, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Sow just means to plant good seed. So a farmer went out and he planted a whole field. Of good seed. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do we have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So a servant said to them, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering the weeds you will root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So gather the wheat, the weeds first and bind them into bundles and then separate the wheat. So here's the, the picture, the story, the, the parable is you're a farmer and you and your helpers all plant good seed. And you have an enemy. You go to bed the next morning, you find out that someone came in or many people came in and planted weeds among the wheat. You discover this. This is a problem. And as, as you discover it, you might not discover it right away, but as you discover it, you think we got a problem. And in the parable, rather than trying to separate the two while they're still growing, just wait to the end, and then we will deal with it at the end. And if you study agriculture at all, particularly in the Middle East, there is a weed that looks very similar to wheat, especially when it's beginning to grow. Almost indistinguishable one from the other until they are full grown. Well, a parable really needs an explanation for us to get the details of it. So we're going to jump down to verse 36, and we're going to get the explanation of the parable. For those of you who like to go line for line, don't worry, we're going to circle back around to the ones I'm skipping over. But here's the explanation, Jesus says. Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. He's planting the good seed. 
And the field is the world. I love that. It's the whole world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, of those who respond to Jesus and are born again. Men and women who become part of God's family, God's kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So it's Satan and his minions. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So the harvest is when Jesus returns. And the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So he's, he's talking about final judgment when Jesus returns. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, all, all who reject Jesus as king, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a lot happening there. But the context is that two things are growing up together. Genuine followers of Jesus and those who are not followers of Jesus. And we often forget we're in a spiritual battle, in a spiritual war with spiritual enemies. And in the church... There will always be a mixture of true and false converts, true and false followers of Jesus. But just like the, the wheat and the weed, for a time, the two may look identical. And if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, there will be people that you know that you thought were followers of Jesus that end up rejecting Jesus, that turn away from Jesus. A lot of times when that happens, we are disillusioned, we're disoriented, we're surprised. But I think we forget that the Bible, the New Testament especially, has a number of people that, that have done that. Maybe none more significant than Judas, one of the twelve disciples, spending three plus years with Jesus, front and center, a trusted friend who turned on Jesus. Or Paul writes about a man named Demas, who in love with this present world has deserted me. In other words, Demas chose the money bag over following Jesus and being his disciple. Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. They lied about what they were doing with their funds. The issue wasn't money. It was they wanted to appear to be one thing when they were actually another. See, the church will always have a mixture. Theologians refer to it as the visible church and the church triumphant. The visible church is what we see. The church triumphant is those who will be in heaven with the Lord forever. We cannot perfectly discern who is in the, the true church and who is not. Listen to a couple of verses that, that are in the Bible that, that talk about these ideas. And, and these false converts can either be church members, or at times they can be leaders. They can be pastors. They can be worship leaders. They can even be theologians. 1 Timothy 5.24 says it this way. 
The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. Like some, you can just tell. Like, okay, I don't think Jesus is your Lord, King, and Master, and Savior. Others, oh, I think really, He is your Lord, King, Master, Savior. But then, what comes out of their mouth and what happens in their life would indicate, no, Jesus is not their Lord, King, Master, and Savior. Jesus said this about false prophets or false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? See, it's our job to, as Christians, to share the gospel, to plant gospel seeds. So Jesus was the original planter, but all of us who are followers are called to plant gospel seeds. It is God's job to sort out true and false converts. So it's our job to plant. It's God's job to sort out true and false converts. Now, if you have a dear friend who seems to be veering away from Jesus, you want to talk to them, you want to go after them, you want to lovingly be a good friend to them. And then you have to entrust them to the Lord and have to point them to the Lord himself. But there will be a day when Jesus returns and you got the weeds that have grown up, you have the wheat, and he's going to sort out the two. And for those who are genuinely believers in Jesus, we will be with the Lord forever. To those who reject Jesus, it will be punished forever. The Bible describes it as hell, of a fiery furnace, of gnashing teeth. It's to get these vivid images that it's a real place. Now what Jesus is going to do in these parables, he's going to go from really heavy to an appeal to joy. He's going to keep going back and forth. And it's going to feel like he's messing with our emotions. But he wants us to get the seriousness of it. He wants us to understand the stakes are very high. So just to say, I don't think I I believe in Jesus anymore, it's not a benign statement. It's not a, a statement that doesn't have serious consequences. And he wants us to feel that. So until the harvest, we want to be busy planting gospel seeds. Until the harvest, we can be confident in the advancement of God's kingdom. One of the questions I asked at the beginning is, is should we be worried? Will the church of Jesus Christ be defeated? The answer is no. You need not worry. You need not worry when cultural tides rise and fall. If you study history, especially church history, they rise and they fall, and they rise and they fall, and God's kingdom keeps moving forward. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So if you look up, don't do it right now, but if you look up on your phone or your computer, size of a mustard seed, it's just a little tiny seed. It looks very insignificant. But you plant it, and then you, then you Google 
um, full-grown mustard plant. You'll see a very large, looks like a very large bush that's 12 to 15 feet high. It's very wide in its canopy, has branches and leaves, and birds will, will find shelter there. Well, his point is, out of something very insignificant comes massive growth, exponential growth. That is what it's like in the kingdom of God. It starts very small, and then it grows exponentially. So you can be confident that God's kingdom not only will make it, will be sustained, but it will keep expanding and growing. And the way the Lord works, he does it by one person at a time. He, he saves someone, then he saves their sister, or their brother, their mom, or their dad, or their coworker, or their friend, and the gospel just keeps spreading further and further outward. Remember, when he's saying this, he has recruited 12 people to be the church. That's the early church. They are the primary leaders of the church, the 12 disciples. They were not the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. They were not the privileged, educated, religious class. They were just a hodgepodge of regular people. Some were fishermen. Some were uneducated. And yet, like a mustard seed, he, he used those 12 men, minus Judas, to expand and spread his kingdom. As you seek to influence people for Jesus, which I know there's a number of you in this room that love to reach out to people, love to introduce them to Jesus, love to want to be used by the Lord to, to lead people, and you're, you're having a Bible study, or you've put all this effort into it, and there's just one person there, two people there, and you're, you're tempted to be discouraged Think of the mustard seed. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. The Lord can use one individual who responds to Jesus to influence the whole world for Jesus. I mean, you think of Esther in the Old Testament. The Lord used her obedience to spare an entire nation of people. Mustard seed of faith had massive effect. Second parable under this heading of expansion, verse 33. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is, is like leaven that a woman took and hid three measures of flour till it was leavened. Now I had to look some of the, these details up. I'm not a baker to start with. And uh, I really didn't know, depending on your, your translation, um, it might have another word for the, the measure of flour. But a peck, so my, my New American Standard Bible said um, three pecks of flour. I didn't know what that was. So that's eight dry quarts of flour. And you put a little bit of leaven in eight dry quarts of flour. Leaven's kind of like yeast, but it's yeast with a little bit uh, different bacteria. But basically does the same thing as yeast. And that's enough to feed 100 people. And, uh, and hungry people. So it's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of food, a lot of bread. Well, just a little bit of leaven does the trick. And the idea there is that this leaven is invasive. It gets to every place that it needs to be. And he's saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
it spreads. It's really unstoppable. One commentator said this about this passage. It said, the little becomes great when God is at work. The little mustard seed, the little leaven becomes great when God is at work. So when you work up the boldness to, to start some kind of endeavor for Jesus, whether it's a Bible study at work or at school or in your neighborhood or in your dorm room, when you, you take that step and you pray, you just don't know how the Lord is going to use it. It's like leaven. This is why, like, think of those of you that, that just have all kinds of different jobs, and you might think, well, my job feels like the most unspiritual thing that I, that I could imagine doing. I want you to think of it in a different way. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so it's, it is spiritual. Whatever you do is spiritual because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And like leaven, God has sent you into some you know, specific work situation so that you could be there. So you are like leaven, getting into that very specific work spot with other people that need to know about Jesus. See, whatever we do as believers in Jesus, as those who say Jesus is our Lord and King and Savior, we're doing it for the Lord. We do it to bring Him honor and glory and to improve the world, to make it better using our gifts and abilities. And so we're like leaven. He can put you anywhere. So don't think your, your station in life is pointless or meaningless. I was thinking about this this morning as we were singing. If, if just medical afflictions have, have come your way in abundance and you find yourself in many doctor's offices at many appointments, it's like that leaven that the Lord, what, what a place for Christians to be. If you think how, how discouraged people are in a waiting room in a doctor's office particularly if the diagnosis is severe. How good of God to have Christians in those settings who can introduce others to the Lord. Be confident that the kingdom of God is advancing. Look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill... What was spoken by the prophet. I will open the mouth, their mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And last week I pointed out that Jesus talked in parables to the crowd, then he brings the disciples to the side and he explains the things to them. His point is to the disciples and to us, your your eyes have been opened to the reality that the promised king has come, and his name is Jesus, and you know me. And so if you know Jesus, what was once hidden has been now revealed. And so I said last week, you have experienced the greatest miracle that's humanly possible to experience in being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. So until the harvest, we can be confident that God's kingdom will advance. Look at uh, the next section. Until the harvest, we must joyfully forsake all for Jesus. Now he's going to tell two parables of these treasures, these great valuable things. He's going to to make a connection to giving it all up for Jesus. It's all worth it. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So later on today, possibly I might go on a bike ride with some friends in the church. Now I want you to imagine we're in some remote dirt road in Creekside or, or somewhere out there, and we happen to look over and we see, we see cash, and we see lots of cash. And let's pretend there's nothing illegal happening. But we, we find lots of money. And, and we, we look at each other, and we're thinking, man, we're, we're in the millions. This is, this is, lot, this is life-transforming money. So we look at each other, we decide to, let's, let's sell everything we have, and we're going to buy this, this, this hillside that looks like nothing. And underneath it, most likely, has an abandoned coal mine underneath it. But we're going all in. Why would we do that? We would do that because of the treasure that we spotted. Jesus' point is, there's no greater treasure than knowing Jesus, than trusting in Jesus, than having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so we want to forsake all to go all in with Jesus. But look at the tail end of verse 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all. In his joy. In her joy. See, there's a moment, there's, there's going to be probably many moments at times where you, you're going to have to sacrifice something to follow Jesus. But there's a greater joy. You're giving up the lesser thing for the greater thing. When I met Jesus as a 19-year-old, I, I gave up a lot of things. I lost friends. I, I lost a lifestyle of things that I was into with parties and all that kind of stuff. I had to give it all up to find something far greater, far more satisfying, a real deep and lasting joy. And so the, the two do not compare at all. But I think sometimes when you, you grow up around Christianity, you grow up in a church family, the, the two look very similar. In fact, the, the, the other things that are not Jesus actually look better, I think, if we're honest, at times. Because you haven't, let's say, indulged in some of this stuff, you don't, you don't see the hooks and the snares and the consequences and the, the devastation that's all wrapped underneath of it. So you can either risk it all, or you can believe what Jesus is saying, that there's a, there's a far greater joy than anything this world could offer. So sell it all and go all in. The, the, the reality is to be a Christian does have a radical call to it. It's not a it's not a halfway. It's not like I'm going to go here, but then maybe I'll go here. It's, 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 no, I am with Jesus. And Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he just keeps calling people. Zacchaeus, I know you ripped off a lot of people. I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. 
And, and he went all in. Zacchaeus w- was celebrating. He, was, he, he found a greater treasure than all the money he had. And he started giving his money away and paying all the people he ripped off and just being generous with it. Why did he do that? Why did a man who lived for money suddenly have an open hand when it came to money? Because he found a greater treasure. Because he found real and lasting joy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a valuable pearl. This is where we got to do a little cultural work because when I think of pearls, I think of my great-grandmother having pearl earrings and it doesn't really excite me. It doesn't think, like, I'm going to leave it all for those that Nanny Smith wears. Um, See, so he says in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. But if you look it up, if you do a little research, pearls, these kind of pearls, were of significantly more value than diamonds in our day. So pearls were treasured and valued and had great monetary worth. And they were small. So you could travel with a lot of money that's wrapped up into one little pearl. So they were of great, great, great value. So he says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of, let's say, huge diamonds, large, valuable diamonds, or fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I mean, think of it this way. If you found a huge rock, a huge diamond, and nobody knew it was there, you, you could sell some stuff, buy it, and you, you, you get a lot of money back for your, your small investment. One of the commentators said this about these two parables. There's something about the kingdom of heaven which makes extravagant action the only proper response. There's something about the kingdom of heaven which makes extravagant action the only proper response. See, I think sometimes people who don't quite get this, maybe you you grew up in this church or another church, but you don't understand why some people seem so excited about it and, and, and you just don't. Well, I think part of it is you, you haven't yet experienced the joy of knowing Jesus. The reality that you were hell-bound and he plucked you from that. And he adopted you into your, to his family. And you're going to spend all eternity with him. See, for those who truly believe that, It's worth it to turn from lesser things. It's worth it to give up other lesser things for the Lord. Until the harvest, we must joyfully forsake all for Jesus and call others to do the same. See, I I think one of the gifts of getting older is there there becomes a, a tipping point, I think, in most people's lives where when you're younger... You're, you're trying to, to get stuff and accumulate stuff. And, and then there comes a tipping point where then you start wanting to get rid of stuff. 
and the stuff is starting to control you and, and take over your life, and you want to you unload it. Um, that, that's just kind of a gift of age. But the Bible kind of cuts through all that stuff. It doesn't mean it's wrong to, if you don't know me or you haven't been here before, we're not saying it's wrong to have a house or have stuff. It's just wrong to make that your God, to make that what you are living for, to, to think that that will satisfy you. You will never be satisfied by possessions. You will never be satisfied. Jesus said it this way, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, eternity is at stake here. And the quicker we learn that relationships won't satisfy and money won't satisfy and possessions won't satisfy and career achievement won't satisfy, the freer we will be. See, I think at times we heard a word this morning while we were singing about freedom. A lot of times when we think of freedom or what I think of freedom, it's freedom from addiction and enslavement. And Jesus certainly brings that, that kind of freedom. But it's also freedom from the love of money, from the love of things, from the lie of society that if you just get this, then you'll be happy. That's also a form of enslavement, but it's a little trickier to see. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This past fall, my, my grandfather passed away, and my sister and I and two of my cousins were in charge of cleaning out the house and kind of sorting through all the stuff. And what was, and I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this, what, what you'll see is people, neighbors, total strangers, come out of the woodwork when they know somebody passes away. And they'll knock on the door, they'll ring the doorbell, and the first thing they always say is, I'm so sorry for your loss. And then they give you the business card. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I'm feeling your, your sincerity there. And, and one of the things we were doing is trying to empty stuff out. So I'd sit stuff in my grandfather's front yard. And like vultures, people would just kind of sweep in. and, and take. But see, that's going to happen to all of our stuff. Every single thing we own, somebody is going to be responsible to take it to the goodwill, to throw it in the trash, to, to sort through it. Now, keep in context, this, is, this sounded rather gloomy. But why we need to get the gloom is because there's a greater treasure. There's something far more valuable than pearls or treasure in a field. Jesus alone is satisfying. He is so worth it. One more Word from Jesus on this subject. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your treasure? That's the question. Is Jesus our treasure or something else? And you can be a Christian and be conflicted on this, but you, you shouldn't stay there. You should turn from that. Lord, I want you to be my treasure. So until the harvest, we must joyfully forsake all for Jesus. Until the harvest, point four, we must plead with others to repent and believe. 
he's going to circle back around to another parable that is going to be very similar to the wheat and the tares, to, to the, the, the true growth and the weeds that, that come up inside. But instead of doing uh, something in the agricultural arena, he's going to take us out to the sea. So look at verse 47. And the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So this huge net, it's out. You pull it in, then you start sorting. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, he's, he's up in the stakes. And that's why if you know Jesus, we need to plead. We need to appeal. We need to invite people to come to Jesus. Both in, in the Bible, you, you have warnings, and then you see Jesus entreat. He lovingly calls. The warnings are real. There's a real danger. And Jesus is saying, I, I came to rescue you from that real danger. If you call on me, if you turn from your sins, you look to me for salvation, I will rescue you. If you have not trusted in Jesus, or you are comfortable in a profession at one time, and now you boldly reject Jesus, the stakes could not be higher. You are in a dangerous, dangerous spot. Not a hopeless spot, but a dangerous spot. Unbelief, rejecting Jesus, is not a small thing. It is a very serious thing. The stakes are high. If you're in that that group, don't stay there. Call out to Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Confess your sins to Jesus, and He will Rescue and forgive. So the chapter concludes with a few verses explaining how we should think through all of this. So the question is, how, how should we respond to all this truth, all these parables, all these burrs that are now stuck all over us and, and are in our conscience to a degree? Look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things, he says? They said to him, yes. And now he's speaking to the disciples. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. It's a little confusing. So there were scribes, like formal students of the Old Testament, that their life was spent studying and writing the Bible. They were the theologians of the day. I don't think he's talking about those scribes. He's talking about disciples. You now are the scribes. You understand the old stuff? And you understand the new stuff. All believers in Jesus. You understand the, what was old, the Old Testament, and what is new, which was brought in by Jesus. And now use that understanding to influence many, many others for Jesus. Look at verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is kind of the equivalent of Jesus going to his high school reunion, having done massive things in the world. He goes back home, and they just see him as Jesus, carpenter's son, knows brothers, knows sister, knows mom. Remember all the weird stuff he did when he was a kid. Um, but here's the point. Because of all that, they, they did not believe Jesus was the king. Now, we didn't grow up with Jesus, but we can have a similar temptation. Think about this. You, you, there will probably be a, a point in most people's lives who grow up in the church. And I don't mean just this church, but any Christian church. Where you have to sort out, do I believe this because I grew up in the United States of America in a Protestant Christian home? Or do I believe it because Jesus is real? That's a good thing to wrestle through because you need to land and you want to land in the second group. I believe it because Jesus is real. We must reject the excuses of being overly familiar and constantly exposed to Jesus. Just because in God's mercy, your first book or one of your first books was a children's Bible doesn't mean that Jesus isn't real. But you, as you grow up, you're going to be you're just really exposed to him and you're overly familiar. And, and somehow that can be used as a reason not to trust him. Rather, the, the better way to look at that is God loves you so much. He put you in a family with moms and dads that love you so much that have taught you about Jesus at a very young age. Because we don't know, but not everybody in Jesus' hometown rejected Jesus. There's probably some that said, oh yeah, that, that's definitely Mary's son, and that's Jesus' brothers, and that's Jesus' sisters. But do you know who Jesus is? He's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And out of all the places in all the world God could have sent him, he sent him to our hometown. That's how much God loves us. Do you see the difference in perspective? Don't use the, the fact that you've become familiar with Jesus as an excuse to reject Jesus. If you study every world religion and philosophy, you will see that only Jesus solves the human dilemma. Only Jesus makes it possible for sinful men and women to be reconciled to a holy God. It's not by our works. It's by Jesus' perfect life his death on the cross is our substitute, and his resurrection from the grave. No philosophy will, will solve that problem. No works-based religion can solve that problem. It's impossible. Jesus alone is the truth. And until the harvest comes, we want to live for Jesus. We want to plant gospel seeds. We want to be confident in the advancement of God's kingdom, and we want to pray for God's kingdom. We want to be okay, more than okay, that we joyfully left all to follow Jesus.
We want to plead with those to repent and believe who reject Jesus. And we want to reject all excuses to not trust in Jesus. Because somehow, out of all the people in all the world, God opened your eyes to trust in Jesus. God awakened your heart to have affection for Jesus. Only the Lord can do that. For those of you who are doubting Jesus, He is so real. He is so near. And all you got to do is ask Him. Make, make yourself real, Jesus. I want to know you. I want to experience you. That's a risky prayer because when He shows up, life as you know it will radically and often suddenly change. But there will be a joy that you have never experienced. So let's all stand. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a final song. Lord Jesus, Thank you that you are the true king. Thank you that you are the ruler of your kingdom. Thank you that one day you're going to return. Thank you this room has many who know you that are here. And and I pray that we would be bold for you. That we would not look back like the Israelites did to Egypt and think, oh, it it was better back then. That is a lie and it's not true. And so may we we not take that lie. May we be amazed. And even as we sing this final song, would you fill us with joy in the reality of our salvation, the reality of knowing you. We praise you and we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.